Well, good morning. I need to have two caveats before I begin this message this morning. One is that I do know it is Resurrection Sunday, but the assignment is the next verse in Nahum. And you might be wondering if, well, does Nahum, the end of it, have anything to do with the resurrection? Well, everything is connected in one way or another. But if you're wondering if there's a direct tie, the answer is no. This is a passage about judgment, but I hope at the end of the message that there is a legitimate way to connect one with the other as we actually understand the full story of what will happen with the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh. Here's the second caveat. As I was talking with Joe about what to title this message, there were two options. One was the really plain title, A Certain Judgment, which is actually in the commentary. And because that was so plain, Joe was quite averse to it. And then I said, well, the other option is the, the title that we gave in the email, which is A Tale of One City. And that is true. And this will be particularly seen at the end of the message. It really is the punchline and the climax of the entire point of what Nahum is getting at. Nevertheless, we have to get there through a specific route. And that route is a necessary truth, namely the certainty of God's judgment, the certainty of God's judgment. And that is an important reality that we must understand, that God's judgment is certain. Often when we hear about bad news, any kind of bad news, we often think about ways to escape it. We often think about ways to suppress it. We explain it away, for example, when we hear bad news, when we hear of a disaster or we hear of a tragedy. We say, oh, well, that person's childhood was a certain way. Or yes, that was his responsibility. It was his fault. Oh, well, that's because they were in a bad situation. That's why this happened. We try to rationalize our approach to bad news. Or sometimes we don't explain it away. We just think we're the exception to the rule. We will say something like, oh, that was a freak accident. That's so rare. And we'll start citing all these statistics to comfort ourselves, to encourage us that what happened to them won't happen to us. And sometimes it's not just that we explain it away, that is bad news, or we think we're the exception to the rule, but we believe that we have the ability to escape the wrongs that happen in this world, that we are better than that. Sometimes it's like this. We hear of a disaster in the Midwest. There's a tornado. And we think, well, thank God, I'm in California. (laughs) And then you hear of a hurricane on the East Coast. And you say, thank the Lord, I'm in California. And then by the Mississippi River or whatnot, there's this thing called rain and water and it floods. And then you think to yourself, well, praise God, I'm in California. California. The only water we have here are in bottles. (laughs) And then you hear across the world of these things called earthquakes. And then you think, oh no, (laughs) I need to get out of California. We do all kinds of things, prepare, strategize, take up responsibility to try to thwart bad news. And to be clear, It is good and justifiable at times to remind ourselves of the truth, to not give in to irrational fear, to not buy into lies that cause us not to trust in God and not to trust in Christ. It is absolutely justifiable to remind ourselves of the truth. That is true and noble. But nevertheless, there are situations in life where our instinctive reaction, and really the world's instinctive reaction, is to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, to try to make excuses, to try to make, quote-unquote, bad news go away. And that is particularly in the times when there are situations that show that sin finds you out. When judgment comes against somebody Unbelievers often want to suppress that. They don't want to deal with that because they don't want to deal with their own evil. And for believers, when we see sometimes other believers stumble and fall, we keep telling ourselves, well, that will just never happen to me. That will just never happen to me. 
That's our instinctive reaction. We try to, at times, explain things away. For the unbeliever, when they see a manifestation of the wrath of God, they say, well, I don't even believe in God, so that's not real, and and his judgment can't be real. And sometimes when we see people fall, we say, well, that that was for a really bad person, and that person was really bad. That's just not me. Or believers and unbelievers can believe that they can escape the wrath of God or his discipline. We think that we're strong enough, good enough, mature enough, clever enough, cautious enough to avoid discipline or to even avoid God's wrath. We often have the attitude of denial. We deny that God's wrath could ever, or his judgment or his discipline could ever affect us. And we're not the only ones. Like I said, society in the present day has this disposition, but even the city of Nineveh, which is the subject of the book of Nahum, had this mentality. If you think about the entire flow of context of the book of Nahum, it has asserted in one way or another the reality of judgment. In the first chapter, we see the complete character of God. Nineveh had experienced Jonah, and through Jonah had seen certain elements, certain attributes of God, but Nahum intends to give the whole picture of God. And with that, the reality is this. If you really understand all that God is, he's not just all mercy, all love, all patience. He has holiness, which means there's judgment. Judgment is coming for you. And Nahum then proceeds to talk about how he will comfort, how God will use this judgment to comfort his people. And as you understand that there are promises that are being fulfilled and prophecies that are being established and even God's personhood that is being revealed, there's a reality to that. All of that demands judgment against Nineveh. And then God explains the nature of this judgment against Nineveh. If you remember, it's a very exceptional, unique, and interesting kind of judgment because it's going to flood an entire city. That's unusual. But nevertheless, the message is clear. That judgment, it's coming. And then God will analyze that judgment and show that that judgment will give comfort to Israel because God will make sure those who have harmed them will never harm them again. And that God will also punish these people for all the injustices and atrocities that have been done against Israel. And with that, though, is the reality. Judgment is coming. No matter what angle you look at it from the book of Nahum, the message over and over and over is clear. Nineveh. Your judgment is coming. And with any bad news and with any person, what happens? They're in denial. And they're wondering, and perhaps even Israel is wondering, maybe Assyria is too big to fail. Maybe they're too strong to be overcome. Maybe they are the exception to the rule. And so God, in the final part of the book of Nahum, tells the Ninevites and assures the Israelites, my judgment is certain. My judgment is real. My judgment is inevitable. And immediately that provides comfort to the Israelites because our God is not just talk. He will make it happen. He will make it happen. That is part of his nature. But understanding that, it's a warning to every single person, believer and unbeliever, because you cannot escape the judgment and discipline of God. It is certain. It is part of his character. It is part of his nature. And there are three realities, three realities in Nahum, chapter three, verses eight, all the way to the end of the passage. Three realities that remind us of the certainty of God's wrath. Nineveh is an object lesson for us all. And here is the first reality. Here is the first reality that Nineveh and all people are, have an inability to avoid judgment. They have an inability to avoid judgment. This is seen in verses 8 through 13. Verses 8 through 13. Like I said, when people are in denial, 
they often think that they're the exception to the rule, that they are above it all, that things can't touch them because they are the outlier. They're, in a sense, better than the rest. Nineveh thought the same thing. Nineveh had the same attitude. The attitude is really universal. And notice then the opening words in verse eight, are you better? That's the question. That's the question. God directly confronts this faulty assumption that somehow you think you're better than the rest, that you have abilities, that you have transcendence, that you have capabilities, skills, that you're different than somebody else that God can judge. God asks the question, are you really better, Nineveh? And he brings up a city called Noeman. This is the modern-day city of Thebes. It's the city known as Thebes in English, but in Hebrew, it's Noeman. And he asks, are you better than this city? And he starts to compare. And what you're going to notice in this comparison is that there's a lot of parables between Nineveh and Noeman. One is that they have the same placement. Notice what the text says in verse eight, that Noeman, it sits along the waters. It sits along the rivers. Nineveh was also by a lot of waterways. They have the same placement and that placement allowed for trade. It allowed for commerce. It allowed for prestige. Nineveh said, we're a great city because all the trade routes come to us. We're a great city because we've got lots of water to supply our people. We're a great city because the water brings people to us and we become a big city, too big to fail. And God says, you're not the only one. Noemon, same thing, same placement. How about same position? Where is the city located exactly relative to these waters? Notice what the rest of verse eight says. It says that the waters surround it. The waters formed a moat. The rivers formed a natural moat around Noemon, a protective defensive barrier. Same thing with Nineveh. Nineveh, the rivers form the walls of the city so that no one can penetrate through because all the waters are aligned with the town. Nineveh says, we're unique, we're different. No other city has rivers surrounding our city. And God says, really? Noemon does. Noemon did. Same placement, same position, same protection. Same protection. Notice the last part of verse eight. It has a rampart that is the sea. The idea of rampart is the outermost part of one's defensive structure. It is what people initially observe when they think about attacking you. It is the place and the visible defense mechanism that causes a deterrent. You say, can you explain that more? Yeah, this is why people say you should lock your doors of your car. This is why people say that you don't put shiny objects or valuable objects in your vehicle so that it doesn't tempt thieves to break in. This is why people even just stick a sticker that says, oh, I have security, even if you don't. This is what deters people. They put up fake cameras. They have lights that shine in their car and flash, even though there is no alarm system in your vehicle. Why? Because we know thieves are lazy. That's why they're thieves. <laughs> and therefore, if you just have a little bit of obstacle, a little bit of challenge in front of them, they're not going to hurt you. They're not going to try to steal anything because they're lazy. And in the same way, Nineveh, and Noemon had a rampart. They had this external defense. And for Noemon, it says in the text, it was the sea. If somebody is thinking about invading the city, they're gonna have to cross an ocean. You know how inconvenient that is, especially if you get seasick? No way. So therefore, they're not gonna bother. It's a natural deterrent. And on top of that, its walls are water. It's very difficult to try to cross and invade a city when you have to use barges and transports to do so. It's virtually impossible because you cannot transport enough people fast enough to overcome the defenses of your foe. And so at that moment, Noemon hasn't made. And in fact, here's what's interesting. Nineveh didn't even have the rampart of the sea. Noemon, God says, it's got better protection than you. 
Why do you think you're better when actually I found a city that's better than you? It's not just better placement. It's not just better position. It's not just better protection. It's even got the same kind of politics that Nineveh had. Notice verse nine, it talks about Cush and it was her might and it talks about Egypt and there's no limit and it talks about these places called Put and Lubim who are her helpers. It talks about all these different locations. Why? Because what you have with a place like Egypt is on the north side. What you have with Cush or Ethiopia is on the southeastern side. And what you have with Putin Lubim is on the southwestern side. You have an imperfect encirclement of nations around this No Iman city, perfect politics. And even more, when you have the phrase Putin Lubim in the Bible, it's not just talking about their political standing, and Putin Lubim is the modern day Libya. It is talking about their advanced military forces are committed to your cause. And therefore, what you have now is a coalition of countries that are serving as the buffer zone for you and they're armed to the teeth and they want to fight for you. You've got protection. Noemon has political protection. Assyria thought they had political protection. They were a big nation, one of the world's first superpowers, conquering all these nations, making a network of them that would defend them. And God says, but you're not the only one who has that kind of political clout. You're not the only one who has that kind of political protection. You're not the only one who has that kind of coverage. Noemon. Noemon did. And God says, they had the same placement. They had the same position. They had the same protection. They had the same politics. And look at what produced from them. Look at what produced from them. Verse 10. She also went into exile. And she also walked in captivity. They were captured. They were captured. To go into exile doesn't just mean to lose your national identity, that's true, but the idea of exile is actually the Hebrew word exposed. These people were exposed. They were shamed. They were dishonored. They were ridiculed, and they lost all their freedoms as they walked into captivity. This is loss on the inside of dignity, and this is the loss on the outside of autonomy. They lost it all. They were so great. They had placement. They had position. They had prestige. They had protection. They had the politics, and God brought this city to nothing. They lost it all. They lost it all. Do you really think, Nineveh, you're better you're exactly the same. Do you really think you're better? And it's not just that they went into captivity. It's not just that they were captured. There was cruelty. There was cruelty. Notice the next part of verse 10, it says this. Also, her young children, her infants, were dashed at the head of the streets. Have you ever seen a baby? You know, the universal response to a baby is, aww, so cute. So lovely. Amen. It's biblical. <laughs> and you just want to carry the baby in your arms. This is a nightmare. When the nation that conquered Noemon is taking baby by their feet and smashing them on the ground. And notice where they do it, at the head of every street. They do it in the public square. They do it at the major intersections of the town. Why? To make sure you never forget the picture. They want to torture the children and they want to torture you. That's cruelty. And you say, but they had the prestige and they had the protection and they had the politics. It didn't make a difference if God wanted to judge them. They went into captivity and they experienced cruelty and there was no care for them Notice the next phrase, they're casting lots for their honored men. Nowadays, we don't even have much of a notion of respect in our society as much anymore to our detriment. But back in those days, people understood that certain individuals should be honored, that certain individuals should be treated a certain way. And everyone's heart was to that inclination. Everyone's heart was bent to that conviction that there were certain people, perhaps the elderly, perhaps those who were mature and had experience that should be respected and revered, and here they are not. 
They're treated like cattle. You cast lots for them. They're like a criminal. And for people in those days, this would be intolerable and so disrespectful. And so you take a city that's so high, so impenetrable, and now you make them captive, and now you do cruel things to them, atrocities and crimes, and then you don't care about them, and on top of that, you conquer them. Notice the last part of verse 10. All her great men, all the ones who are the warriors, they're the strength of the nation, they're the strength of this city, they're bound with fetters. It's clear, this city is broken. It's subjugated. It is conquered. And there is something else to be said here. The word or the phrase bound with fetters is not often found in the Old Testament. It's not often found at all. And one text it is found in is Isaiah 45, verse 14. And if you have been following along at all in the book of Nahum, you will notice and you will remember that Nahum is highly connected with the book of Isaiah. It is the near prophecy that guarantees Isaiah's far prophecy. For example, in Nahum chapter one, it says this, behold, the feet are those who proclaim claim good news. And you say, I thought that was in the book of Isaiah. You're right. It is in the book of Isaiah because Nahum's point is what I'm prophesying here is the near prophecy that will fulfill Isaiah's far prophecy. You know what Isaiah is going to say is going to come true because of what I say here. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter one, it talks about a vile counselor. The king of Nineveh is a vile counselor. Well, that contrasts with Isaiah says, because he doesn't talk about a vile counselor when he talks about the Messiah. He talks about the wonderful counselor. The near prophecy that God will deal with the vile counselor is proof that in the end, there will only be one wonderful counselor in the end. Nahum is the near prophecy that guarantees the far prophecy. And if you remember, there is this phrase, empty to destruction, used in Nahum chapter two. Why empty to destruction? Because the city of Nineveh will be flooded and it will even sound like a bottle emptying. The Hebrew word for empty to destruction is book, 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 book. And that is on purpose. That even word choice is on purpose, not only to indicate how Nineveh would be destroyed, but in Isaiah 24, it says this, that the world will be emptied to destruction so that God's glory will fill the earth. You have to empty something first to fill it. And so God says, look at the destruction of Nineveh. That's the near prophecy that fulfills the far prophecy. And all of those were related to Isaiah. And here is yet another one. God says in Isaiah 45, that in Israel, in the end, all the nations that hurt them, all the nations that oppress them, all the nations that abuse them, Israel will bind them in fetters and lead them in victory. And God says here, look at Noemon. They're bound with fetters. They're the enemy. They were bound with fetters. Nineveh, what happened to Noemon, you're not better. It's going to happen to you. And that's the near prophecy that proves the far prophecy that in the end, Israel will have that victory. The near prophecy guarantees the far prophecy. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, okay, I get it. There's all these similarities between Nineveh and Noemon, and God really humbled Noemon. In fact, he even used it as a precedent to what's gonna happen to Nineveh, which is actually a near prophecy to what happens in the far prophecy for the nation of Israel. I get it, but would Nineveh understand all this? Would Nineveh understand this? Would Nineveh comprehend this? Would Nineveh have known this? Here's a simple question to ask. What nation do you think conquered Noemon? What nation do you think wiped them out? What nation do you think took them over? What nation? Assyria. What city conquered Noemon? Nineveh. And God says, when you were conquering Noemon, when Nineveh, you invaded that city, did you not see yourself in the mirror? They're the exact mirror image of you. They're your sister city. They are you and you should have recognized it and you should have known. Are you better? No, you're not. And at this moment, that message becomes clear for Nineveh and it becomes clear for all of us. Look in the mirror. Do you really think you're better than the person that you saw on the news? 
than the person you heard about, than the person you saw disciplined? Do you really think you're better? Really, do you think you're better? God points out, no, you're the same. You're the same. 1 Corinthians 10, if you recall it, it gives the example of Israel and how Israel stumbled and how Israel fell and how they were judged in the wilderness till all of them minus one generation died. And what does God say? Take heed, lest you also, what? Fall. You are not better. You are not better. Nineveh needed to learn this, and we needed to learn this. And even more, God continues to press the argument, and he says, Nineveh, you're not better. You're actually worse. And that's because of the power of God. Look at the rest of verse 11. You also you also, this is what's also going to happen to you. And here's what's going to take place to Nineveh because of the sovereignty of God. You will be drunk. They will be inebriated and incapacitated. When someone is drunk, they cannot respond properly. That will be Nineveh. God will disable them. And Nineveh will be drunk, verse 10. In fact, that corresponds to something earlier in chapter one, where God says about Nineveh in chapter one, verse 10, it says this, that they will be drunk. So God is basically saying this, what I said was gonna happen to you will happen to you. You cannot change prophecy. It is established and I will execute exactly what I said. Chapter three, verse 10 reiterates that. Chapter three, verse 11 says that. And in fact, it won't be just that they're drunk, it'll be that they're destroyed. Notice the next phrase of the text in verse 11. You will be hidden. You say, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in this case, it's a bad thing. When you are so hidden, no one can find you, then you are completely destroyed. And that's an archeological reality. If you remember, Nineveh, People couldn't find where it was after it was destroyed for three to 400 years. That's how devastating it is. God says, you think you're so good? I'll bring you and make you nothing, really nothing. You will be completely hidden. And in fact, your strength, your status will be reversed. Notice the next phrase of verse 11. You will also seek a refuge of a stronghold from your enemy. It, Nineveh before was the fortress. Nineveh before was the stronghold. Now they're all gonna be looking for a new one because what was strong was made weak. What was strong was made weak because God made it so. And it's not just that it's a reversal of status. It is a reversal of their own strength. I love this. Notice the next phrase, verse 12, actually. All your fortresses, all your fortresses are like figs, ripe figs. What did we say fortresses and ramparts and all those things do? They're a deterrent. They tell you to stay away. They keep robbers, they keep invaders away. Well, here's what God is gonna do with them. He's gonna make them, I mean, since I'm a unhealthy person, let's not use fruit here, let's use a different analogy. He's gonna make them like candy, and the, every, what, is, what happens with candy stores? They, there's a reason why candy stores put their candy in the front window. It's the same reason why fast food restaurants all have red and orange in their logos. It's to attract your attention, to draw you in. And so every child runs into the candy store. And at first you think, oh yeah, well, we'll let them run. We'll not, we won't buy. And in the end, you won't buy too much. And that's what really takes place. Nineveh, you think you're so strong. You think you're such a deterrent. Here's what God will do with you. He will take your strength and he will make you delicious before the nations. They'll just wanna eat you. You're inviting them. You're asking them to come. And in fact, it's so, you're gonna be so weakened and so disabled and everything will be so overturned, you're gonna be easy prey. It says this in the next phrase of verse 12. If you shake the tree, the fruit falls. It's easy. You just kick the tree. It's so ripe. It's got so much fruit. The fruit just falls. You don't have to put any effort in. And that will be Nineveh. Nineveh, 
will be easy to take out. And in fact, if you remember how Nineveh falls, a flood just wipes out all the defenses of the city and everyone just walks in. There's no effort. There's no struggle whatsoever. It's easy. You didn't have to do a thing. Just walk. That's pretty simple. And so God says he'll make it easy for them because he'll lower them. And it's not just that they'll be drunk. It's not just that they'll be so hidden that they're destroyed. It's not just the reversal of their status because they're the stronghold and now they're not. It's not just the reversal of their strength. They're going to have weak people. Look at verse 13. You have women in your midst. That's what this text says. Your people are women in your midst. I think we've seen in recent days the reality that there's a difference between men and women, even though they don't want there to be a difference between men and women, but that only brings out the difference between men and women. <laughs> Note athletics. And as a result of this, God says the truth, which is this, that if you have an army of people who are less mighty than the others and less trained and skilled, they will be no match. Your people will be weakened. And in fact, it's not just that your people will be weakened, your prevention will be weakened. Notice the rest of verse 13. The gates of your land will be opened wide. Do you know what a gate open wide is? It's a hole. And if you have a hole in the wall, you have no wall. And God says, that's what it will be like. Your wall won't be a wall. I'll reverse that. And in fact, he says this, and I'll even destroy, I'll even burn your gate bar. You say, what's a gate bar? It's the bar you put behind a gate to lock it down. In the modern day, we call that a deadbolt. Do you know what a deadbolt though is? When there's no deadbolt, it's an ornament on your door. That's what it is. And God says, you're just gonna have gates there for an ornament but they're pointless because you can just walk right through and take out the city. That's how easy it'll be to destroy you. You have no fortification, you have no people to protect you, and even what's supposed to protect you won't protect you anymore. God will bring them down. Now, here's what's fascinating. Here's what's absolutely fascinating within all of this. It is this that God has been talking a lot about the city of Thebes, has he not? And he's been using the city of Thebes, the city of Noaman, to tell Nineveh, you're not better. You're not superior. He's been doing that. And with this concentration and with this vivid account of the destruction of Thebes, that actually dates the book of Nahum because presumably Nahum must have written right around the time when Thebes was destroyed. And now we have a positive date ID on the book of Nahum, and it is 663 BC. 663 BC. You say, why do you need to know that? Bible trivia? I don't even think Bible trivia will even ask you that. The reason you need to know it, though, is exegetically because of this. This is 50 years before Nineveh is destroyed. This is 50 years before Nineveh is destroyed, and every scholar recognizes this has to be the date of the book. It has to be because it's anchored to the destruction of Thebes. It's anchored to the destruction of Noaman, which means this. This has to be a real fulfilled prophecy. It has to be. There's no other explanation. You have to, you, there's only one way if it's anchored this way and then you predict something that uniquely and distinctively happens 50 years later, it has to be fulfilled prophecy. God did it. God did it. And that's actually part of God's point. God's point is, look at what I did to Nineveh. Look at what I did to Noaman. Look at what I did there. I had to have been the one who did it. Why? Because I'm the one who prophesied it. Therefore, I'm the one who made it happen. And notice what he made happen. He brought a big, bold, impenetrable city to nothing. And there is a lesson therein. Do you think anyone can stand before God? And the answer is no. God will make low the proud. He will bring low those who are arrogant, those who are high and lifted up. Nineveh, believers, even unbelievers, do you really think you're better than God? Look at Nineveh. It's clear 
that God is the ultimate one behind this. Why? Because he prophesied that it would happen. And since he prophesied that it would happen, he's the ultimate source of it. That goes without question. And then look at what he did as the ultimate source. He took a lofty people and made them nothing, totally humiliated them. Who can stand before Yahweh? No one. He'll make you well. He'll make you owe. Do you really think you have the ability to avoid God's wrath? The ability to avoid God's judgment? No one does. No one does. Look at Nineveh. It doesn't exist as it was. Why? As proof of what God is saying here. No one has the ability to avoid the wrath of God. Well, there is a second point that God has about the certainty of his judgment. And that second point is this, that God's judgment is inescapable. It's not just that we have an inability to avoid it. It's that it is inescapable. And we see this in verses uh, 13 through 16, really, 13 through 16 of this passage, or really 14 through 16, rather, 14 through 16 of this passage. And the principle that is here is the principle of what we might call backfire, when things backfire on you, when, when things go the other way around that you intended them. It really is and reminds me of Proverbs 26 when it talks about the fool. It says this, that the fool ties a stone in his slingshot. And what is the picture? Well, if you understand back in those days, slingshots are not just things that you shoot like bows and arrows. They're the things that you whip around your head, yes? But if you lock the stone in the slingshot, you just whip it around and you, you launch it, but the stone doesn't launch. So what happens? It just whips right back around and knocks you in the head. That's a fool. Don't be that fool. But that's the nature of backfiring. That's the nature of backfiring. The more you try to do something, the more the opposite happens to you. The more you try to do something, the more the opposite happens to you. And Nineveh is going to encounter this. Look at verse 14. It says this, the water, draw water for the siege. Nahum can't get over the water thing. He just knows Nineveh's going to get flooded. This is hilarious. Buck, buck, buck. You know, he just does all this kind of stuff. And so he says, start drawing some water. Do what you normally do. Go, get more water. After all, you're going to get tons of water in the end. You're going to get a flood. So go ahead. Just get the party started. Just start the trickle going because that's what's going to take you out. You thought your water was your strength. It'll actually be what? Your weakness. Backfire. And it's not just, it's not just relative to the water, it's relative to their fortifications. Notice the rest of verse 14, it talks about strengthen your fortifications. Go to the, uh, walk into the mire and, and seize hold the brick mold and things of this nature. It could, devote every resource, devote every effort, devote all your attention to building these structures, the def these defensive structures, investing in producing and manufacturing the bricks that will brick by brick build up these walls. Now notice, in verse 14, it says fortifications. Look at verse 12. Does it not say the same word, fortifications? Same term. And what did God say the fortifications were? Ripe figs, delicious fruit, modern-day candy. God says, you're going to keep building up these fortifications, and you think they're going to make you so strong. You think they're going to be a major deterrent. Nineveh, this is all that's going to happen. All you're doing is building up the candy store. All you're doing is making your city look more inviting and more delicious, and all you're doing is making yourself so big that when you fall, and you will, everyone will enjoy it and laugh at you. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. You think, you think that it's going to help you. You think that by doing this, you can avoid the will of God, but actually, you just fall right into it. And that's made really, really clear in verse 15. There, fire will consume you. The very place you thought you had safety, the very place you had security, that's where fire will eat you up. And not only that, but the sword will cut you off 
You will be executed in such a way that people will know that you were under the condemnation of God, cut off and severed from all of his blessings under his indignation. That's you. But here's what's interesting. We've just said, Nahum, he loves the water stuff because he knows that Nineveh will be flooded. But what does he say in verse 15? There, what will consume you? There, fire will consume you. Now, think about this with me. What's weird? If they're going to be flooded, then why do they have fire? From a very young age, what do we teach children? How do you put out a fire? Well, one, you don't start them. But before you get to that point, and after that's too late, you pour water. That's all we teach them. Bucket brigade, turn on the faucet, you know, and then when you get more expertise, then you can use fire extinguishers and stuff. But really, it's all about water. So here's what's strange that Nahum prophesies. On one hand, there's going to be water. On, one, on the other hand, there's going to be fire. And it seems like it's two mutually exclusive things. Here is what is absolutely fascinating. Here is what is absolutely fascinating. Here is what the text says. And here is what even archaeology records. It says this, that when the king of Nineveh saw that his city was flooded and being overtaken by the enemy, he gathered his concubines and his entire court and set himself on fire so that the city burned. You have fire and you have what? Water. And that's exactly what happened. You can't escape God's plan. This is a weird detail. You might say it even looks like it's contradictory. You have water and you have fire, but that's exactly what happened when Nineveh was destroyed. The waters came in, the king set a funeral pyre and set it on fire and it set the palace and the rest of the area on fire. And so Nineveh burned even as it was what? Flooded. Exactly like God said. And what does this show you? What does this show you? Nineveh, tried so hard to avoid God's prophecy, to avoid God's judgment. But what actually happened? They set up for the whole thing. They set up for the whole thing. You can't stop God's prophecy. And along that line, that's actually what you see in the rest of this part of the passage. You'll notice it talks about how there's going to be a heavy locust plague. And these, these locust plagues, they're going to, they're going to consume the nation, the city of Nineveh. If you ever have time, just look up images of what a locust plague looks like and what happens after a locust plague. A friend of mine taking pictures of it said, it looks like the moon. When a locust plague, when a locust infestation finishes, it looks like the moon. You say, why? Because there's nothing. There's nothing on the ground at all. It's totally stripped bare. There, you say, well, is there dead grass? No, there's no dead grass. There's no dead anything. There's nothing, just dirt. And there's these little craters where the locusts have actually hit the ground trying to dig for things. It looks like the moon. It's eerie. All you have is a barren wasteland, and it is 100% barren. And God says, that's what I'm going to do with you. That's what I'm going to do with you. But then it gets weird because notice in verse 15, the next phrase, multiply yourselves like locusts. Be heavy, be multiplied like creeping locusts. Wait, I thought Nineveh was going to be ravaged by locusts. Now it sounds like God is commanding them to multiply like what? Locusts. Which one is it? And the answer is yes, it's both. <laughs> you see, and here's how it's going to work. Nineveh thought they could avoid this prophecy by multiplying themselves like what? Locusts. So that they were so numerous, no one could invade them, yes? But in the end, what's going to happen is that what they thought they could multiply will be removed so that the other locusts can what? Come in and destroy them. And this is exactly what takes place. Look at what the rest of the passage talks about. Verse 16. Oh, they multiply their traitors. They had economic superiority. They went all over the world and people depended on them for commerce. You know, they became kind of like China. Everything's made in China. Everything's made in Assyria. You need them. 
You, you need them for all your knickknacks. You need them for all your commerce. You need them for all your supplies. That's how they thought they could defend themselves. They multiplied their commerce across the world, their economics across the known world. They're like the stars of heaven. They fly far and wide to establish these networks of trade. And on top of that, you have then these marshals and these guards. The marshals are like the secret service. The guards are the elite forces. And so Nineveh has protected everybody. They protected their elites. They protected their nation. And in fact, in verse 17, what it talks about then is that these soldiers and these traders and all of their military economic apparatus, just like locusts, they line the walls because they're protecting the city, just like locusts can inhabit the walls. And then it's a cold day, so no one's thinking about battle. That's exactly like locusts and soldiers do. And then the sun rises. Then the sun rises, the text says. And what happens when the sun rises, verse 17? Well, one of two things can happen with locusts. They either swarm or they scatter. It's one of two options. They swarm and they attack or they scatter. And in this case, notice what it says. They flee. And where do they flee to? No one knows. No one can trace them. You know what's fascinating is that they actually use supercomputers to trace the movements of locusts, to try to track them down because locusts are so devastating to world economies. There's a, even a group at the UN that does this. And they have great difficulty doing the software modeling because it's so crazy to track just a bug. And God says, that's your soldiers, that's your economy, that's your politics. No one's gonna be able to find it, it's gone. And when that's gone, the other locust horde of the other nation will what? Come in of what was vacated by your own locusts. You tried to stop prophecy, you actually made it what? Happen. And in fact, it goes one step beyond this, because why talk about locusts out of nowhere? Nahum just starts talking about locusts. There's another book of the Bible that talks a lot about locusts. Anyone know what book that is? Joel. And God says, in the book of Joel, here's what's fascinating. Some people even think Joel 2. There's an analogy in Joel 1 about locusts and in Joel 2 comparing an army with locusts. Some people even think in Joel 2 that that army is Assyria. What's the message? What comes around goes around. It'll come back to haunt you. And no matter what you're thinking on Joel 2 is, the text later says in Joel 2 and in Joel 3 that what was done against you, Israel, will be done against them. What was done against you will be done against them. And God says this, Nineveh, you worked so hard to try to avoid my judgment, to avoid prophecy. You actually not only made the book of Nahum happen, you made the book of Joel happen. That's how much you can't avoid the will of God. And initially here, we need to understand something, really two lessons as we think about how God's judgment is inescapable. The fundamental lesson is this, that God's plan happens exactly like he says it does. It's absolutely certain. You might think that some parts of his plan, they're just sensational. They're, they're even seemingly contradictory. They, they seem too good to be true or too crazy to be true. Well, remember in the book of Nahum, it talked about how a city would be wiped out with water and with what? Fire. That seemed too crazy to be true, but it what? It happened. And the point of it happening is it's the near prophecy that guarantees the what? The far. God's plan will happen exactly like he said with every single detail. We can bank on that. We can bank on that. And that is both the portions of judgment, but that's also the portions of what? Restoration. Both are true. Both are true. But then with this, there's another reality. Did you see how Nineveh, they tried so hard. They drew the water. They strengthened their fortifications. They multiplied like locusts. They did all kinds of things to try to avoid God's wrath, to think that they could outsmart God. But instead, all they did was make it happen. Simple principle. Be sure your sin will find you out. You know that. I know that. And Nineveh is the proof of that. Nineveh is the proof of that. You can't escape the wrath of God. You try, 
And the harder you try, the more you set up for his wrath to come down on you. Be sure your sin will find you out. Even as believers, if we think we can hide our sin away, if we think we can masquerade it, if we think we can just kind of cover it up and do clever things to avoid human detection, know this, your sin will find you out. Nineveh is proof. They tried everything. They did anything to try to bypass the wrath of God. And all they did is make it happen. You cannot escape the sovereignty of God. Your best efforts will only actually succeed in making what God wants to happen, happen. Be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide this. You can't avoid it. Well, we have an inability to avoid the wrath of God. It is also inescapable. And the final point that we see in the last verses, verses 18 and 19, is that it is inevitable. It is inevitable. And at this point, we really start to see the title of the message, A Tale of One City. And what we start to observe in verse 18, it talks about Assyria. It talks about Nineveh's shepherds. These are their leaderships. We talked about how their people have become women. We've talked about how their fortifications are like fruit. We've talked about everything they've tried to done backfiring on them. We've seen all of that, and now there is just one thing left, one key piece of the puzzle, and it indeed is key, one final blow that is going to take place, and that is the failure of their leadership, and it first talks about the shepherds of Assyria, the shepherds of Nineveh, and the reason shepherds are used is because shepherds do care for their people. That's their entire job. They feed the sheep, They guide the sheep, they protect the sheep, have to do that all the time, and that requires really what every job requires. Have you ever ever read HR forms? I have to do that a lot now. And you read them, and they have all kinds of requirements. Must lift 40 pounds, must be this height, can type this many words per minute, has adequate skills in Word, also in Excel, can use SQL, you know, and all this kind of stuff, and you read all these things, but they miss always the most fundamental thing that is required for every job, at least jobs that I know of, and shepherds, which is this, that you stay awake. (laughs) If you don't stay awake, then your job doesn't get done. And particularly for a shepherd, you have to be vigilant all the time. That's why even in the book of Luke, it reminds us that shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks at Night. Well, look at these shepherds, verse 18. Your shepherds are what? Sleeping. This word for sleep is a unique word. They're completely comatose, unconscious. You, You could sound the fire alarm. They're not waking up. They're out. That's how asleep they are. Leaders can stop disasters. Leaders can help avert disasters. But if they're totally out, then the disaster is going to come and they're going to even help. And notice who this message is addressed to, O king of Assyria. And at this moment, you realize here's where you're going to start to see the tale of one city. You say, why? Because we've met the king of Assyria before. He was in another book of the Bible, the book of Jonah. And God gave him a message, and it was a hard message. But he responded in repentance. He tore his own clothes, commanded that the whole city repent, even putting sackcloth and ashes on their animals. And God had mercy on him. God had mercy on him. But in the same city, with this king, he does not receive mercy. Notice what the text says. You only have mockery. Your shepherds are asleep. And notice it's even worse than that. Your mighty men have laid down. You say, well, that's the same thing as sleeping. No, it's not. It's one step above that. You could fall asleep. You could be so overcome with tiredness, you just collapse, yes? But when you on purpose lay down, that's a different story. It reminds me of a colleague I had, and he used to work back when he was a college student at Walmart. And he worked at Walmart in the nighttime, in the middle of the night shift, 
when you're supposed to restock everything on the shelves. And he told me that all of his coworkers, what they would do is they would stack these boxes that they were supposed to empty and reshelve as a fortress around them. And then they would hide inside the boxes and fall asleep and set an alarm. Instead of working an eight hour shift, they would work for, uh, they would sleep for seven hours and 15 minutes. And the alarm would go off 45 minutes before their shift was over. They wake up, scatter all the boxes and reshelve everything on the shelves in 45 minutes. That's why you can never find anything at Walmart. <laughs> they laid down on the job. They did it on purpose. They knew exactly what they were doing and they didn't care. King of Assyria, that's your people. That's your mighty men. Those are your soldiers. Those are your military leaders on the ground. They don't care, and they're going to quit. I'm going to make them do that. The king of one city who repented and was humble and then received mercy is the same king in the same city, so to speak, that will not receive mercy, but will receive mockery in judgment. This is the tale of the one city to give you a complete picture of what God does. This is just the opening taste. And the results of this, of this disaster, you can see it. Every, your people will scatter on the mountains. Of course, if you don't have proper leadership, it's over for them. And they're gonna go away, king. And not even more than that, look at the end of verse 18. And there will be no one to what? Gather them. You know, it's interesting as we've been saying, Nahum is the near prophecy for a far prophecy. Do you know what word often is used for Israel in far prophecy? I will gather them. I will gather them. Isaiah 56, verse 8, though they be banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them. Micah 2:12, the remnant of Israel, I will gather them. I will gather them. Here is what God says: Nineveh, you will not be gathered, but my people will what? Be gathered. See the difference and be ashamed, O king. Be ashamed, O king. And speaking of shame, verse 19, here's what's gonna happen to the king himself. And you say, why do we wanna target the king? Well, just like you target Hitler and just like you target Stalin and just like you target all the wicked leaders because they are the archetype, they are the architect of everything wicked that happened. You wanna know if justice is really gonna be done and it must be done against the top. And so God says this, verse 19, you're gonna be broken. You're gonna be broken. This is a torturous death and you will have a wound that cannot be healed. That's a wound that actually gets infected. So even if you don't die of the wound, you die of the infection. That's what's gonna to happen to you. And you say, what else is gonna happen? Everyone who hears of the news will clap their hands. You say, what does that mean? It means they clap their hands. It means they're happy. They give him a round of applause because he's dead. The first standing ovation this king gets is when he's dead. And you say, why is he going to be treated so spitefully? Why is there going to be such mockery? And God says this, because upon whom did your wickedness, did your evil not pass through continually? And the answer is, you pass through continually your evil, your moral wretchedness, your moral immoral atrocities, your wicked harm. You did that against every nation repeatedly over and over and over and over again. And because you were so terrible and so evil, of course everyone celebrates when you what? Die. You deserve it. And at that moment, this rhetorical question screams out, you must be judged. Your judgment is certain. But here's what's fascinating. Here's what's fascinating at this moment. There's only one other book in the entire Old Testament that ends with a rhetorical question. One other one than Nahum. Take a guess what that is. Jonah. And in the book of Jonah, here's the rhetorical question. Should I not pity Nineveh? Because there's animals in the city and 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right. And what was the answer in Jonah? Of course, God, you should have what? 
pity. Of course you should show grace. Of course you should have mercy. You must have these things. That was so obvious in the book of Jonah, and look where it ended up in the book of Nahum. Of course, God, it is so obvious that this city and this king must be judged. You went from grace and mercy upon one city to the same city being worthy and demanded and required of what? Condemnation. And it's the same what? City. And here is the tale of one city. The city that received such great mercy and patience is the same city that is going to be decimated for their sin. And the lesson is clear. Just because you have received mercy once, just because you have received grace, just because God has had favor on you, just because he's been patient with you does not mean that automatically guarantees that the next time he will be. Listen to the tale of the one city, the one city that received mercy, presumed on it, and did whatever they wanted to, even killing God's own people in their invasion of the nation of Israel in 722 BC. They did that, and God said, that doesn't mean I'm gonna turn a blind eye the next time. You're dead. For every unbeliever, they have experienced common grace, and often when we present to them the gospel, they say things like, well, I'm fine so far, so I'll be fine. No, you won't. Learn the tale of the one city. And for believers, we often think to ourselves, well, I got away with it this time. I, I should be fine. God, God's gonna turn a blind eye. He may not. He may not. Remember the tale of the one city. We need to remember those who receive mercy don't presume on it. You have experienced the kindness of God because it leads us to what? repentance. That's what we need to remember. You might say, well, what an Easter message. (laughs) What a haunting ending. Beware your sin will find you out. Take heed lest you fall. The kindness of God leads you to repentance because his judgment is certain. Remember the one city, the one city that had mercy and then lost it. Remember these things. What a What a chilling message. How, is there any encouragement in all this? It reminds me, after I preached another message in Nahum, two brothers in the Lord came up to me and they said, Pastor, we're from Assyria. And that message kills us to the heart, hearing our people judge like that. And on one hand, I completely empathize with them. And on the other hand, I was almost tempted to say, well, you do know, like, what about the Jewish people reading the Old Testament? I mean, you got one book targeting you. They got 39. (laughs) But is there any hope? What's the total story? And it's important that you know the total story. They did receive mercy in Jonah. They got judged big time in Nahum as an object lesson to us all. Turn with me to Isaiah 19, quickly. Isaiah 19. After all, have we not said that Nahum is the near prophecy that causes the far prophecy? Have we also not said and noticed that a lot of Nahum's prophecies are linked with what book? Isaiah. To be consistent then, it isn't just some parts of Isaiah, it's all parts of Isaiah, including this one. Chapter 19, verse 24. It says this, on that day, Israel will be a third along with what other nations? Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. And Yahweh, God of hosts, will bless them, saying this, blessed is my people who? Egypt. Do you remember Egypt? They've been bad since the book of Exodus. They were the bad guys then. They've always been the bad guys. But in the end, God what? He saves them. And he says that they're not just those people who enslave my people, those people who I had to destroy with 10 plagues, those wicked people. He says they are what? My people, my people. And then notice what he says, the next phrase, Assyria, Assyria. And what does he call them? The work of my hands. God says, yes, you exiled my people. 
yes, you destroyed my people. Yes, I showed mercy to, uh, to you and you didn't heed it and you spat on me and you despised me and you didn't care. Yes, all those things are true and you had to be judged for it. But in the end, for the sake of your people and for the sake of the repentant ones in your people, even those who repented in the days of Jonah, in the end, you will be called what? The work of my what? Hands, you're my masterpiece. Why are you my masterpiece? Because you are the greatest testimony of salvation. You are the testimony that those who received mercy but failed and then received absolute judgment and who were even the enemies of God and his people on the wrong side of history, those can be brought back as a permanent testimony of this, that God will even make his enemy his son. That is what this nation will symbolize for forever. That is what is going on here. And yes, is there hope for the nation of Assyria? Yes, it's the same hope that we have even for Israel because after all, they're on par with Israel. They're parallel with Israel. Israel, my inheritance. And you say, what bought all of that? What made all of that? It's simple. It is Christ's death and his what? Resurrection, which makes all things new. New, not only for us, new for them. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, your plan is amazing. It involves not just our personal lives, though that would be extensive enough. It involves this entire world, nation after nation, even nations like Assyria raised up, driven down, and then raised up and saved once again as a demonstration of your marvelous saving grace, the redeeming love that you have, a love that overcomes not only death, but even makes the enemy your own. Thank you for all that you do, and may in it all we never lose the reality that with such grace poured out, that should lead us always to repentance. Your judgment, your discipline is certain, and may we always tremble before you. In your name we pray. Amen.